Hi, welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast with Tracy Castles, PhD. I am Tracy, and today I have an amazing conversation with Dr. Jerry Giesbrecht from the University of Calgary. He is a researcher who recently released a paper on infant crying, or rather our delayed responsiveness to infant crying, and later outcomes and behaviors. Now, what you might hear in the media about such research is often not as nuanced as it should be. And this conversation with Jerry just highlighted exactly how much nuance there is in the research. So I really hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did, because I think it's an excellent dive into not only some newer research on the topic of infant crying, but also on some of the limitations in what we hear of research on a daily basis. So without further ado, I present to you what I think is a very interesting discussion with Dr. Jerry Giesbrecht. Hi, everyone. It's Tracy Castles, PhD with Evolutionary Parenting. Welcome back to another episode. I am really pleased today to have with me Dr. Jerry Giesbrecht, an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Community Health Sciences at the University of Calgary. He is also a registered psychologist who works with children and families, and generally his area of study is in how early life stress impacts children's development. So Jerry, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me to be here. I invited Jerry today because he has a very interesting recent paper out in the Journal of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics, which is entitled Parental Use of Cry Out in a Community Sample During the First Year of Infant Life. And we're going to talk about this study in depth here today because, as you all know, I'm very vested in infant sleep and the practices and sleep training and everything. Um, but I want to start by first asking you, Jerry, what led you down this path of studying kind of infant sleep, these parent-infant interactions more generally? Mm -hmm. I would say that there's multiple motivations. As, as you well know, there's a huge controversy in the field about um, the use of cry it out. And that's both an academic discussion as well as a parenting discussion. And there's... Um, strong voices on both sides of that equation. So I think what we were, you know, from a scientific point of view, we were interested in developing new evidence that would inform this question about the appropriateness of strategies like delayed responsiveness to infant crime. <clears throat> um, that, so that's a, a professional answer. On a personal level, I have two children who are now teenagers, but at one point they were um, at the stage where, um, you know, crying was a, uh, a large component of, of what we were interacting with them on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, uh, neither of my kids were excessive criers, um, but um, my, my wife was a strong believer in um, sort of developing routines with them, and um, and and so her, you know, I know because you're very interested in um, sleep routines and so on. This was something that actually she taught me, um, <laughs> which is always fun, you know, when you're the psychologist in the family. Um, but um, 
it was uh, so there, there's a personal level here at which I'm interested in this question as well. And then I guess clinically as well, seeing um, young parents struggling enormously with a child who will not settle. This is very distressing for some new families and um, can can definitely lead to significant and serious mental health problems in new parents dealing with a, an infant who just won't settle. So I think there is something at stake here, um, you know, something definitely in the realm of um, the health and well-being of, of some new parents. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And those are all issues. I think it, it's fascinating mm -hmm. to hear because they're some of the same impetus from someone like me looking at mm -hmm. this issue in talking to families about sleep and expectations. And of course, mm -hmm. that interaction with your infant, who they are and their specific needs, which obviously we'll get to because as we talked about, temperament is one of those things coming up here that you actually looked yep. at. So yeah, it's um, one of the unique aspects of our study for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So on that note, could you take some time to tell everyone about the study more generally, kind of what you did, the methodology and the conclusions that I think you feel you can draw given potential limitations or where it needs to go forward next to help mm -hmm. kind of answer some of these these questions as they stand? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, you're well aware that no single study is the definitive answer. So, you know, we, we can provide some, um, some answers and there were sort of four questions that we wanted to address. So maybe I'll just outline the four questions and then I'll describe what we found in each one of those. First thing I should say though, is this wasn't a sleep study. So we were studying crying um, and we also looked at sleep, but this was not a study that specifically looked at the use of cry it out in the context of infant sleeping. So I think there is definitely relevance to the question about infant sleeping, but it's not, it's not really um, directly addressed at that question. So um, the, the data comes from the Alberta Pregnancy Outcomes and Nutrition Study, which is a pregnancy cohort that began in 2009, enrolled about 2,000 women and their partners, some of their partners, and, and then their babies as, as well when the babies were born. And we've been following that cohort now. Um, the oldest kids are now 10 or 11 years old. So this data is from that first year. And you know, it was just published last year, which just shows you like how long it takes to really put this, you know, to pull it all together and, and put it out there. It's, it's, it's a big effort. Um, thanks to all of our parents, though, for providing this valuable information. So there's, there's kind of two pieces to the methods here. One is self-report. So these are just um, asking the parents about crying, about sleep, about temperament, about their use of cry it out strategies and things like that using standardized instruments. So these have some support in the literature, have previously been used, measure what they say they measure and so on. And then there's an observational component. So observation of parents and children is hugely labor intensive. So we, there's no possible way that we could bring the entire cohort in. And so we 
essentially sort of randomly selected. It wasn't a true random selection, but we did okay in terms of just sort of selecting um, a group of 137 moms and babies to come in. At six months, we did an observational measure of parent-child interaction. And this is um, essentially what happens is that you score the sensitivity of the mom and the sensitivity of the infant to the mom. And then between those two things, you get an overall interaction quality measure. Um, and it's, it's, it's what I would consider to be gold standard uh, in the field, we, we don't really have anything better than this in terms of evaluating parent-child interaction. And then at about 20 months of age, we did the strange situation, which is the Ainsworth procedure. And again, the gold standard measure of attachment, infant maternal attachment. Um, and we used um, the University of Minnesota um, scoring system, which again is gold standard. We were trained by Alan Shroof and Betty Carlson. In fact, Betty Carlson was the, um, the second coder, the, the reliability coder in this study. So That's fascinating. Um, you know, I, think, I think we did okay in terms of our observational measures are really solid. Um, okay, so that's kind of the methodological context. The, the time points that we looked at are three, six, 12, and 20 months. Um, so uh, four time points. And, and the four questions that we were trying to address is who uses cry it out, first of all? Secondly, how commonly do they use it? And how does it change as kids get older? Um, third, are there any harms to infant social emotional development? And finally, are there potential benefits to infant development? So I'll just go through those four questions and, and give sort of the, the, the brief uh, answer to what, what our data seems to be showing us. So in terms of uh, who uses cry it out, we were interested in, you know, what are the maternal characteristics or the parent characteristics? And Specifically, we were interested in are parents who use cry it out less sensitive in our observational measures compared to parents who don't use cry it out? Um, so um, in terms of, you know, who uses it, the answer to that is, well, most parents do, actually, especially higher income and white parents. Um, cry it out users also had a higher postpartum depression, especially at three months of age. And they were not less sensitive compared to parents who did not use cry it out. And in fact, the association was in the positive direction, but it wasn't statistically significant. So I, I, we didn't even mention the positive direction in the paper. The reason I'm mentioning it now is because there, this is one of those parallel universe stories where simultaneous to our study, um, a group in the UK was doing the exact same study that we were doing and we knew nothing about each other and published our papers essentially at the same time. Um, and that study, I mean, I just described our methods with some very slight differences. They used the exact same methods that we did their measure of 
um, maternal infant interaction actually demonstrated that the cry it out moms were more sensitive than the moms who were not using cry it out. They had a sample size of about 187. So this is a very solid sample size for a study of this kind. So, mm -hmm. but in our study, there was no difference in, in sensitivity between the moms who were cried out users and those who weren't. On the infant side of the equation, what we see is that infants of parents who use cried out tended to have higher levels of difficult or maybe what we would call problematic behavior at three months of age, for example, they had they had more cry, they cried more. They had more crying episodes. Um, they were more likely to cry at bedtime, um, and they had more difficult temperament. So um, those so that's that's who uses cry it out. Those um, and and I, I'm going to come back to these some of these characteristics a bit later in talking about what I think that that means because I think there's a signal in there that's telling us something about why some people are attracted to use cry it out and perhaps others are not. So how commonly is cry it out used, and how does it change as infants get older? What we saw at three months was that about 23% of parents were using it, and by one year of age, 61% of parents were using it. So um, certainly not everyone, um, but many parents are using it. Parents who use cryodote at three, men, three months tend to be more consistent users. That is, if you're gonna start early with a strategy like cryodote, you're probably gonna use it more consistently over time. And, and consistency, by the way, is something that tends to go in your favor in terms of parenting strategy, if there's something you want to teach in your child, um, which, by the way, is not me endorsing the use of cryodote at three months of age, just to be clear about that, because um, I think uh, I I have some reservations about the use of cryodote, especially at three months of age. In terms of harms to infant social emotional development, we found no evidence to suggest that the infants or toddlers experienced any harm, and that was across our maternal report measures. Um, and by the way, all of our coders were blinded to these study outcomes. So, um, so you know, there and and the parents. This was, by the way, this was not a study about cry it out or about infant crying. Even this was a study about nutrition and mental health. And, and these were additional measures to go along with that. So it's, you know, it's not really possible for parents to sort of perceive what were this, this or anticipate this analysis and somehow um, alter their responses in regard to that. So um, I feel pretty, pretty confident that the data we collected show that um, infants are unlikely to be harmed by the use of cry it out the rates of secure attachment were the same in the cried out users and then in the non-user groups. And of interest across all the measures that we use, not one of them found that infants of cried out users fared worse than infants of non-users. In most cases, they, uh, or in many cases, they fared the same. And in some cases, the infants of cried out users fared better. And that's the final point. What are the potential benefits to infant development? 
So as I noted previously, infants of cryout users tended to have more problematic behavior early on, so like at three months of age. But what we see is that over time, their behaviors improve. So what I mean by improve is that, for example, on hours of crying, we see infants of cried out users had a lot more crying at three months of age compared to the non-user infants. But by, by the time we get to 12 months of age, there's absolutely no difference between the two groups. So, you know, the tempting conclusion here is that cry it out caused this change in behavior. Um, we cannot conclude that based on this study because it's observational. However, we do know that cry it out as a, uh, at least in the context of sleep training, does cause change in infants' behavior. So, you know, is that what's operating here? It's not really possible to say, but we do know that um, that cry it out has the capability to change infant behavior. So take home message, two of them. Number one, cry it out is a, cry it out is a strategy, strategy that sensitive and caring parents use. And secondly, when used selectively <clears throat> and in response to the specific needs and characteristics of the infant, cry it out does not harm the infant's social emotional development. All right. Thank you. So there's a couple of things I want to just clarify for people because I think there's just the study questions that come up of people who don't know these measures and exactly what they're they're looking at. So um, you did clarify that the cry it out was not specific to nighttime sleep. But I know when I first contacted you, that was one of my questions was, was it specific to nighttime versus daytime? Did you get a sense as to how often people were using it in daytime versus nighttime methods or, or timing, I guess? Um, no, that, that really wasn't possible for us to determine. We did see some connections to um, with things like cry it out users um, were had infants who were especially likely to cry at bedtime. So this to me suggests that they're using it at bedtime, um, but you know we can't can't really say that for sure. You know, I guess the other thing just to point out in terms of a fairly significant limitation of this work is that we don't know how parents were using cryo. And um, this is also a limitation of the other um, paper that I just mentioned to you, um, who, which used the same self-report measure. Um, you know, when you do sleep studies of behavioral extinction using cryo, you have you know, medical supervision and you have very clearly defined protocols of how you're gonna use cryot out and so on. We, so we, we really don't know how, we're, we're, bottom line is that we're, we're relying on the intuitive sense of what cryot out means. And we know that cryot out has a range of meanings out there in the public. So we have to, there's a, there's a bit of fudge room here in terms of what exactly were parents doing with this cry it out strategy. I think bottom line is 
they were allowing their infants to cry for some period of time, <laughs> um, which is why in the paper we refer to it as delayed responsiveness to infant crying, because that's probably the more appropriate um, characterization, the more technically correct thing that we can say across all the versions of what cry it out could mean out there in the public. Delayed responsiveness to infant crying is, is a universal meaning across all of those. Yeah, and that's actually, so it, it brings to mind for me a conversation I've had with others and it kind of links to this issue of temperament and as you say, kind of parental instinct, mm -hmm. responding mm -hmm. to your child's needs and awareness of what your mm -hmm. child needs. And I don't know how quite to, how much do you think the positive effects that you saw had to do with this, this idea that parents may have a good idea as to what their children need, that yeah. they get a sense of how much they tolerate in terms of, okay, you can wait five minutes because especially when you describe how these are infants that at the beginning were far more distressed that sometimes there's the parental need to take a moment and say, I can't yeah. take this during the day. I need, mm -hmm. I need to walk away. And we tell parents before you shake your baby, before you do everything, step away. And if that's, you know, what's happening is that, you know, qualitatively different, a mother that responds that way to an infant's high distress and emotionality than someone who may say, I'm doing this very systematically in order to just elicit a specific change in behavior. Do you think there could be differences if you were ever able to disentangle those different types of uses in place? Yeah. So I think this is a, a very insightful question and, you know, one that, that we've really tried to contemplate. When we say that we see these improvements in infant behavior over time. But, you know, the first caveat to that is we cannot definitively say that it was cried out that caused it. And one of the reasons we can't say that is because either the um, use of cried out did in fact cause these changes in behavior, or people are um, attracted to cry it out because on some intuitive level, they know that it's the right thing for their kid. And doing the right thing for your kid is always the thing that leads to better developmental outcomes. So this could be a selection problem where the people who um, are going to end up with the kids who are um, the least negative and who um, have the least sort of problematic behavior um, gravitate toward these cry it out strategies because of some characteristics that they can intuit. So, and, and one of the reasons that I think this is a real potential explanation is because when we did our measure, our observation measure of maternal infant interaction, something unexpected happened, which was that we found no differences in maternal sensitivity between the cryo moms and the moms who didn't use cryo, but we did see an effect on the from the infant side, <laughs> and of course we were like, "Oh man, you know, like sometimes these unexpected things lead to great discoveries, and other times they are just like, well, what on earth does this mean?" So, okay, so let me just explain what it is that we observe. 
So the infants of cried out moms, those 137 for which we did the observational measures at six months of age, this, this um, quality of interaction tasks, these infants are more attentive to their moms they're more responsive in terms of taking cues from their moms and sort of settling when the mom soothes them or directs them. So there's something going on with these infants. There's, there's qualitatively something more attuned about these infants to their mom's behavior. And I think what this means is that the moms know this. Of course, they couldn't ever tell us that if we had asked them that. But on some level, they know this. They know that their infant is going to follow if they lead. And so they are, um, you know, and, and again, we're just right back at the chicken and egg thing. Is it, is it, be, is the, are, the, are the infants following the mom's lead because the moms have trained them to do that from an early age through through use of things like cry it out and other strategies, I think cry it out might just be an emblematic behavior amongst a whole suite of other kinds of sort of structured strategies that these parents are using. Um, I think it's a bit difficult to disentangle. And I, I think in our data, we have evidence that actually both could be true, that the infant's somehow are telling the moms, I need you to do this. And on the other hand, that the moms doing it is developing characteristics in the infant that lead to these changes that we're observing. So that's really interesting. So I, I want to, when I got to the idea of infant temperament too, I have to admit, I also think about the distinction between, um, you know, you looked at a negative emotionality. So we have infants who may be more fussy, more distressed. They display just generally a more negative temperament. And that's one element of, of temperament there. But we can look at these clusters of children. So I think about the work on the orchid child from Dr. Thomas Boyce or, you know, um, the high needs baby, the, um, the highly sensitive child, all of these constructs that seem to be defining pretty much the same group of individuals. Um, and then looking at other kids, I know we have retrospective work on kids with ADHD or dyslexia that's showing higher emotion um, reactivity in, for them at a very young age, that they're responding to these situations much more reactively. When we think about the temperament parent interplay, mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that sometimes having either a child like that versus a more dandelion, chill, ready to follow as you lead kind of kid that's saying, yeah, all right, cool, you do what you do and I'm gonna follow you along, could have profound impacts in our understanding of exactly what you're looking at, these interactions and the long-term infant outcomes. And I think back, there was um, a study a few years ago, Lautzenheiser who, and Hoffman mm -hmm. and, and Beach, who looked at you know the parental experiences of, they looked at controlled crying. And you know there was this significant group that found they really, it wasn't effective. It didn't reduce um, any kind of crying. They were doing it for extended periods of time. There was you know a, a whole slew of kind of 
problems, I would say, that families faced using it. Do you think that this type of temperament, this kind of emotionally reactive temperament, and so it's not defined by negative emotionality, but more by anxiety or fear. They're the kids who may have stronger um, separation anxiety, stronger mm -hmm. fears to, you know, noises or stranger danger, et cetera, at a young age, that there may be this interaction between the two, between that temperament and something like a cry out technique that may lead parents not to be using it, knowing right off the bat, or where there may be the potential for mm -hmm distress or negative outcomes within this kind of subgroup of children? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, two theoretical concepts that come to mind and I think are useful here. Um, um, one is goodness of fit between the parent and the child. And, you know, as I suggested earlier, you, you tend to have better developmental outcomes in infants when there's a goodness of fit between what the parent expects and what they actually see in their infant. Um, wonderful when that works out, sucks when it doesn't, right? Um, the other theoretical concept is this idea of differential susceptibility or biological sensitivity to context. And this is some work that Boyce and others have been working on. Temperament, it, negative infant temperament is, is actually a decent proxy measure for this biological sensitivity to context. And what that perspective would suggest to us is that these highly sensitive kids um, have two potential trajectories in life. One is a uh, very accelerated um, high level trajectory where they actually achieve some of the best developmental outcomes that are possible. And that happens in the context of highly supportive parenting. Um, well, let, let's not, I don't think, it, parenting is not quite broad enough. There, it needs to, it's the whole environment. It's a highly supportive environment, but parenting is pretty key. Um, that same group of highly sensitive kids also is uh, capable of having the worst developmental outcomes um, because uh, in the context of an unsupportive environment. And we've got some, I would say, decent preliminary data to show that that this is operating. And that's, that, that, that's related to that orchid child that you referenced earlier. Whereas the dandelion child is going to respond somewhat to what's going on in the environment, but not like this highly sensitive child. So if we see these more negative infants that we observed in our study to be more on the highly sensitive spectrum, then it makes sense that these kids are ending up with some of the best developmental outcomes because these they're the highly sensitive kids um and and what's interesting to me about that is that the cry it out strategy somehow is figuring into this and you know i think it's not really cry it out i just i, I find it hard to believe that it's that one thing but i think cry it out is one characteristic of an overall parenting strategy 
that can be very supportive for a highly sensitive kid. And, and I would describe this as sort of a, an authoritative parenting strategy where the parent is simultaneously structured and highly supportive. And that highly supportive bit is the really the key element here to be able to make this work. So that's interesting. I am. Um, so yes, I, I know that there is generally in the literature, a bit of a link between that negative temperamentality and the orchidness. And going back to your parenting goodness of fit, what I found, you know, equally compelling potentially is that there's another group of highly sensitive children who don't show this negative temperamentality because the goodness of fit, that child parent connection of responsivity and support is just there from the get-go. And as they have that from birth onwards, they tend not to show this stronger emotional responsiveness because in essence, all those needs are being met right away. And so I do wonder if there's almost you know, like you look at co-sleeping as a discussion, um, you have to almost split it up between you have your early co-sleepers who are like, we're planning this from the beginning, we're doing this from the start, and they have different sleep and trajectory outcomes than reactive co-sleepers, where parents are responding to this perceived problem and choose to co-sleep from that. It makes me wonder if there's almost two distinct subgroups of this highly sensitive child whereby you have this negative emotionality early on because of the mismatch with the parent expectations of what it should be. They may not be able to respond in kind. So they're finding a different structured way of trying to fit with this child given their own views and perspectives versus those that may be the non-cry it out users all the time because they're like, well, and not all of them, but some of them, they're just at the beginning like, well, I'm going to co-sleep, I'm going to rock you, I'm going to do what needs to be done to address the crying. And in turn, that has a positive cyclical effect going on because they are addressing that stress need early on. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on just that idea that we may be looking at two more subgroups, just to add to all the subgroups we have going on already. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, I... I think it's a distinct possibility uh, because there's um, there seems to be a lot going on in that group, and and certainly we see really different outcomes. So when we when we observe heterogeneity in outcomes, that to me suggests that there may be heterogeneity in some underlying factors here. So I, I think it's a possibility. Yeah. Which then brings me to the question about, um, you know, these problem behaviors and the idea of the fewer problem behaviors at a year were really to do with crying. Am I correct? That's crying behavior. Um, so in terms of also temperament and sleep, okay. um, night waking. Um, yeah. So hours of sleep were much improved. Night wakings were much improved. Um, temperament. So here's the interesting thing is that when you look at things like negative temperament, there is a normal increase in negativity over the first year of infant life. Um, and what we see is just much less strong increases in temperament, negative, this negative aspect of infant temperament. 
among kids who were exposed to this cry it out strategy. So, so yeah, it's, it's crying, sleep and temperament where we see the, um, for lack of better term, better outcomes. Yeah. So I'm going to quickly play devil's advocate on a few things here, if you don't mind. Sure. The first is the sleep, which I just think is worthy of noting. I know in a lot of studies, we, we look at parent report for sleep. That is, we say, how much did your kids wake? But as you probably know, when we look at those few studies that include objective measures of sleep, so typically it's actigraphy, um, we see that there really isn't a change. So I do always wonder when I look at that parent report that there was drastic improvement in sleep, how much is the parental perception of improvement in sleep versus the reality of of the number of night wakings. So it's the parents are getting woken less, but I, I don't know that the child's sleep has actually improved? Well, so this is a a really important point because when we measure sleep using parent report measures, what we are measuring is um, signaling, Mm -hmm. not sleep. Yeah. So it's it's really important to keep that in mind. If you're a co-sleeper, you you know if your baby is sleeping or not um, because you get woke up every time the baby is awake. If you are not a co-sleeper, then, and most cry out users are not co-sleepers, um, then you, you only notice that your baby is not sleeping when the baby signals loud enough to wake you. Yeah. Um, so that's one point. Um, in terms of the, the other measures of crying, like, like the hours of crying, uh, sorry, um, sleep, um, night wakings. I think we're measuring signaling there, yeah. not not necessarily sleep. Um, but in terms of hours of sleep, again, if you're not co-sleeping with your baby, you don't know a hundred percent if that baby is asleep or not, um, because there may be periods during the night where the baby wakes up, does not signal, and then falls back asleep. So that is um, that is definitely possible. But I I think our our self-report measures or parent report measures of actual amount of sleep are decent in it, you know, especially, you know, using these large survey studies. Yeah. Oh, no, it's and I think it's a limitation of large survey. You, You have to sacrifice your, you know, sensitivity of the test to get the number of people you need to get some data, which is exactly as you brought up and something I want to echo actually way back when, but that it's really important for people to realize that when you do a survey study, you cannot bring everyone in. And I sometimes hear parents complaining, well, they only did this number of people and they didn't get everyone. And I just want to reiterate, the cost to bring everyone in yeah. would bankrupt us all. So it is just not yeah. feasible to do that. So it really is important to keep that in mind. And so it's a limitation, but it's a necessary limitation. That's I just right. like to bring yeah. it up because I think, you know, especially in, in my world, talking to a lot of families about sleep in particular, there's a misconception that things like cry out or sleeping alone can actually seem to change sleep as opposed to changing the signaling around waking or changing basically that interaction between parent and child. So it is something there. Now, with the crying as the second behavior, as one of the things that came up as the problematic behavior, and I know you use, and I thank you for saying, you know, 
problematic kind of in quotation marks because it they're I'm not sure it's really problematic. Um, one of the things that would come to mind and just a question I have is how much do you believe that has to do with um, kind of this child learning not to express negative emotions um, mm -hmm. versus a child who feels they can. So I think back to Solter's work who talks about the need for children to release these negative emotions. We do see that increase if that is kind of what we would call the human norm going up the biological norm of these experiences. Is it healthy and positive to have children that don't express them? Um, do we believe, I guess it comes down to, do we believe these are children that are no longer experiencing the distress or are they not signaling it out of some other reason? Either they don't believe it will be responded to as much. They um, have somehow learned other skills with which I know there's a self-soothing hypothesis, which I admit just mind boggles me at that age, the idea of that, but there you go. Maybe it's that um, or something else going on. So um, I, I mentioned earlier that um, I, I have some reservations about using cryodote at three months of age. Um, and w the primary reason for that is really developmentally speaking, what crying means at that time point and how much infants can learn. Um, you know, I... <laughs> Um, a, a postdoc in, in my lab just had a baby on New Year's Day. And so, you know, we're all talking about what babies learn in the first few days. And, and it's really quite incredible. I mean, the whole routine of breastfeeding, you know, babies come prepared to suck, but they don't know how to feed. And so they have to learn to do that over the first little while. So I think I want to reserve judgment about how much infants can learn early on. But at the same time, I think I want to be, I feel like I want to be quite cautious about the approaches that we take to teach them. <laughs> um, and, and it seems to me that um, extensive or, or long use of cry it out at an early age um, is is a developmental mismatch that the infant isn't really prepared to learn in that way at that time point um but i do think you know th this question about do the infants just get depressed and then stop crying because they realize that they're nobody's going to attend to them um uh, I think definitively this is not the case. This is not what's going on. Um, because if it was, we would be seeing these effects later on. And and we don't, we just, we just don't. So I don't think that's what's going on. I do think, you know, um, some advice that my sister gave me, um, someone who is a, a parent but not, a um, researcher or a professional, but just learn from her own children. Um, her her uh, comment to me was, you have to allow them to develop their own confidence in themselves. And she was talking about infants, very young infants. Um, it struck me as odd <laughs> at the time because I didn't have any kids. Um, 
I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the other component of that is empowering parents to have confidence in, in, in their own sort of intuitive sense of, of how they need to respond to their infant. Um, you know, I think there's, there, there are clearly lines where our intuition should never take us across. Right. You know, I'm talking, you know, the, the frustration that might lead to shaking a baby, for example. Um, but, but I think our fear of those kinds of outcomes should not uh, prevent us from encouraging parents to attend to what's your gut telling you about how you want to respond to this and what's going to work for your infant. Um, you know, I, I wish there was a, a universal answer, but the, the reality is that there just isn't. Every infant is going to respond somewhat differently. So it's always a sort of an N of one experiment that that we're doing to try to sort through what's the, you know, what's the thing that's going to um, fit for us. I thank you for bringing up the issue of the long-term outcomes because it's something, you know, in, in my world, I'm, I'm do not advocate cry it out for infants or, or for toddlers even. Um, but I'm very clear when I speak to families that, you know, no, there isn't this smoking gun that tells us you're horribly damaging your child, no matter what, that's not how it works. Um, I just happen to think there are other methods that are much more effective and address the needs of everyone. But I do think it's worth discussing this issue of attachment because, you know, there's, I, I always think when I think about this effective cry it out, the potential effect long-term that people have in their mind of learning, as you said, do they become depressed and learn no one's coming? Um, I think about Joan Grusick's um, domain theory in this. And I don't know if you know it, but she posited that this was back in 2006, 2010, I'm, I can't remember the year, but um, that basically one of the problems we have in psychology is that we look at these domains in parenting and we expect it to have a globally huge outcome. So we take these small specific behaviors like the use of cry it out and expect positively or negatively to have this massive effect. So like on attachment status and in reality, those global things are derived from exactly as you said, a series of behaviors that we do throughout. So it's so easy to take a look at one and say, you know, cry it out. And I'm sure there are probably some children, if we look at some of that highly reactive, who would fare quite poorly with it. That may be enough to push it over and have a negative attachment. But by and large, there's going to be all these sensitive moments as well. And these mm -hmm. other moments of responsiveness, just as you found that sensitivity within the reaction that we have to, when we're looking at outcomes, consider not just infant temperament, which is going to dictate a lot of that interaction and how it goes, but more globally, how that has an effect on these things like attachment, because it's not just defined by one event. And so when I think about secure attachment, I don't think, I guess my thing is, I don't think it should be the outcome study or, or pardon me, the outcome variable when we're looking at something like cry it out, because I think it's just, 
kind of what you've gotten at is when you look at these other behaviors, it doesn't in and of itself define it. And so I guess I'm wondering, for me, I was most interested in the fact that you study stress more generally, because it seemed to me there's more of a risk of an interaction between a child temperament and their experience of stress in something like cry it out, depending on how they experience the stress. Your N of one is exactly it, because each person experiences stress differently as having potential longer term outcomes and still possibly not even related to attachment. It may be related to a stress reactive profile. It may be related to um, a higher fearfulness temperament down the line, something like that that pops up. What do you think about other variables that might better define how we look at these kind of outcomes going forward in terms of longer term development, not just at a year, but at, you know, two years, three years, six years, 10 years you're up to in yours um, mm. study. Yeah. Well, so, you know, attachment in some ways is the theory of, of everything. Um, and, uh, you know, because everything is relevant, to the attachment relationship in some, in some very broad sense of, of that term. However, you know, um, not every cry, for example, is an attachment related cry. And I think this is where the, the water gets super muddy. And I think this is where all the frolicking academic and parenting and otherwise gets done is is on what what I think of is an emotional understanding of attachment rather than a sort of clear conceptual understanding of attachment. Um, you know, on as I've said, on the one hand, everything is related to attachment because it's the history of the behavior and the do you show up in the right moments for me um, that builds the relationship. And on the other hand, um, not everything is uh, attachment worthy. Um, so not every tiny little interaction that we have is going to show up on the attachment radar. Cumulatively, they will, um, but not as an individual spec. And I mean, this in some ways just comes right back to the point you made about how could this be about cry it out, you know, like one parenting behavior, like it seems nonsensical that the whole attachment relationship would hang on this one behavior. And yeah, it is nonsensical. The thing is, both in the parenting and the academic literature, there's a lot of frothing about this issue. So, you know, it's a it's a topic that a lot of people are talking about in exactly these terms. If you use cry it out, you will harm your baby's attachment. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's this, um, irresolvable kind of tension where everything you do goes into the attachment hopper, but not everything really counts in the same way. Um, there, are, you know, if, if you're in the kitchen preparing dinner and you've got something that's going to burn, if you don't stick with it. And I think we've all been at that moment, right? When the baby starts crying, I think, you know, on some level, some intuitive level, and this is, I think, where we have to get back to the trusting 
that parents really do know or can develop that gut for what's going on. I think we've all heard the cry where we're going to leave it on the stove and let it burn and go deal with it because we know that's a cry that means we need to come right now. And we've all heard the cry that tells us, oh, okay, <laughs> this is something that can wait. Um, do, do the behaviors related to those two different cry count the same? I say absolutely not. They, they absolutely do not. And that's the important distinction to make. Here in studies like this, where we're just asking about the use of cry it out, we can't distinguish between those moments where, you know, these are attachment cries about hunger or danger or pain or something like that versus I'm bored and I want you to entertain me right now. <laughs> and that's, I think, you know, such a, a crucial construct here. And I think it's why, you know, it almost gets down to that definition of cry it out. As you said at the beginning, it's so hard mm -hmm. because we don't really know how people interpret it. There's such a range of things. And it's like, I am, I do not advocate cry it out for sleep, you know, leaving your baby, shutting the door, walking away, being non-responsive. Um, I believe those cries are are important to listen to and to address, especially at night. And I focus on at night because we do have a human history of being scared of the dark. There's a lot of fears that go on. I also qualify that I think some parents know, and and I talk to them, I work with them, that their kids have a cry that they're just like, my kid ain't settling. That is not, you know, exactly like I'm going to leave the stove burning because when I put them down, if I try to walk away, I can tell within a day, this is not going like this is not going to work. And they know their child and they come back and they say, I've got to respond. I'm like, yes, yes, you do. Because that is that attachment cry that they're signaling to. And some kids have more of them than others. And I think that again, goes back to that temperament and potentially the highly sensitive child. Um, but what's interesting to me is this idea of, and I, I promise, I know we're coming up on time, I won't keep you too long. But what you brought up the idea of parental intuition, um, because I feel like one of the biggest struggles that families have is this because we live in a culture that constantly tells them, no, to be a good parent, this is what you do. Mm -hmm. So I hear, you know, when we talk about studies that say there's no detriment to cry it out, what sometimes happens is those get used. Um, and why I want people like you on, because you can clarify what's happening in your research. You can share everything you have, which is a much more nuanced view than what we get of someone saying, hey, look, there's a new study that says, you know, using cry it out is not only not bad for attachment, but actually leads to better outcomes. And then you get parents being told, hey, you know what? No, you've got to do this. It's actually good for your baby, despite the fact that they may have that child where they try it, it doesn't work. And then they feel depressed because they feel like they're just a bad parent because, well, what's wrong with my baby? Like I left them to cry for three hours and they vomited. And you're like, that's mm -hmm. part of this nuance. So I don't know, but in your clinical work, you work with families as well. How do you help build that sense of intuition away from a culture that has very strong views on parenting that are completely culturally specific? I mean, they're not cross-cultural at all. You look at anthropological work and our views on how to parent are, are quite unique to Western 
industrialized societies. But how do you get them to build up their own intuition in their own babies to know what's needed and, and what's not? Uh, yeah. What you're really talking about is confidence in a role that is poorly defined and that we're ill-prepared for in our Western society. Um, I, I think it's it's about discussions that that sort of connect to your um, sense of what works and what doesn't, and what feels right, and where you're willing to stretch your boundaries. So, just as an example, listening. You know, parents who who use cry it out at at bedtime as a sleep training strategy. So, um, you know, we, we do know that, uh, you know, from several clinical trials that this can be effective, especially for some infants. Listening to that infant cry during that time period where you are um, letting them cry it out is intolerable for some parents. It's a difficult thing to do. There has to be a fit between what you're prepared to do, what your kid needs, and so, you know, some meeting in the middle, if you will. So, um, you know, cry it out is just not going to work ever for a parent who um, uh, feels apologetic about doing it, for example, or feels guilty about doing it because the the infant will sense the hesitation immediately and um, and and the parents um, behaviors will will just not be um, as effective as they would be if if you're comfortable with it. So you know I think developing a sense of where's your comfort zone, where do you think you need to stretch your comfort zone? Do you need to develop a strategy around um, tolerating the sound of the crying for longer periods of time for for whatever reason, whether you choose to use cry it out or not? Um, but, you know, um, working with um, a supportive other whether that's the the baby's other parent or whoever, to to really be able to um, work through what are what are we prepared to do, and and most of this stuff is all about sort of in the moment. What do we need to do to be able to get through today, or you know the next couple of days? Because you know certainly my experience as a parent has been that. Um, there's some very sharp moments in your experience with your kid that that can be extremely challenging. And within a very short period of time after that moment is over, everything sort of disappears into the ether and you wonder, what was all the fuss about, right? But it, in that moment, it's very acute and it's very challenging and difficult. So getting through those moments, I think, is is the key thing and being planful about how you're going to do it and making realistic plans. Are you truly ready to do this X behavior? Um, 
If not, don't don't attempt it because you you, you know in the half-hearted doing you will feel like you were unsuccessful and and lack of success tends to instill additional lack of success and and a feeling of discouragement and so on. I realize it's not a it's a very partial messy answer to your question. Um, I think you know bottom line is it's a process and um, it it requires a listening ear um, and and someone who who cares enough about you to be able to um, really support what you're doing, um, even if they disagree with the way you're approaching it. Yeah. It's funny because I think in all that, it just brings me back to one of the drawbacks of our society to that I think we bear the brunt predominantly on families, um, children and parents, is the lack of social support. When you think about other cultures where things like crying it out just aren't a thing, um, there's a huge network of support for everyone. So when we think about why parents engage in something like crying it out, sometimes, you know, there's the practical reasons of I've got food on the stove, I've got another child I have to attend to who's hurt. And that was actually going to be, had we had time, one of those questions, how many of these families actually had a sibling? Because that certainly increases the amount of <laughs> cry out during the day. I mean, Absolutely. there's only so many hands yeah. that can go That's to so right. many kids. Um, yeah. So we have these kind of things that, you know, naturally affect our ability in a culture without other people that are lacking in other cultures where or somehow the judgment of during the day, at least, because it's certainly not very common at night in many other cultures to leave, you know, a child to cry because for a lot of practical reasons. But, you know, they just there's no judgment about it. if you have to attend to another baby, you attend to another baby, then you go to the other child, you, you know, and they're going to wait. And that's part of life. Um, but I do think it's just, you know, it, it's so frustrating to me to see how much support gets lost for families, because we're so focused on whatever else the economy, our jobs are everything else mm -hmm. that parents are kind of left at the bottom rung with, you know, just being told what they should be doing. And if they don't, then well, you made a rod for your own back one way or another. Um, whatever it is they do that seems unfair in this. So hopefully, we can, you know, on top of finding ways for individuals to change, figure out a way for more support for families more generally um, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. facilitate this because I mean, just as, as soon as you mentioned that supportive other it's you need those supportive others. And I don't think it's just one. I would go so far as to say you need, you know, three, four, five, ten. I don't know. Sometimes I've thought about opening up my house to a variety of people and saying, why don't we all live together, create our commune and share all the duties? <laughs> it seems like it would make parenting a whole lot easier, right? Yes, I'm <laughs> sure it would bring up many challenges as well. But um, but you're absolutely right that, um, you know, we we need the support and as you pointed out right right at the outset most of my work has focused on um st the effects of stress on on kids and um and and i've done a lot of work on how social relationships change the biology of stress and this to me is just well it's a different podcast but it's one of those stories that just gets me so excited because our relationships, you know, literally our kindness to each other has the ability to change the biology of stress. 
And that to me is super powerful. Well, that is something I would love to have you on again to talk about because it's an area I'm, especially with infancy, because you look at all the individual differences and the experience of stress. And that Mm -hmm. one piece that I keep going back and I I read up a lot of Megan Gunner's work on this long, Mm -hmm. but social buffering, which is, I think, exactly as you say, that support from others is just paramount to our our survival. Um, and it has intergenerational effects, and that that is powerful. It is. It's insane. It's crazy. Okay. Well, then, if you're willing, I just will have to have you back on to talk about that because it's a crucially important topic, especially for parents. Um, but once again, I would just like to thank you so much, Jerry, for joining me today. This is really interesting research. I thank you for talking about it. I thank you for the nuance to it because, as I said, I think that's one of the things that gets lost in mainstream media, everything, but there's mm-hmm. there's a lot more nuance to these studies, to these questions, to the history of them than often gets um, discussed or allowed for in the space of, of this discussion. So I thank you very much. You're very welcome. I enjoyed the conversation. Oh, great. And is there any place that people can go to check out your other research? Is there any, or take part if they happen to be in the Alberta area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my lab's at the University of Calgary. I'm the developmental psychobiology lab, and um, I can be reached at, uh, well, the the website is, if you um, um, Google Dev Psych Lab U Calgary, you'll, you'll get to my lab where you can see other stuff that I'm working on. Thank you so much for listening to that conversation. I really do hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed having him on. And I do hope he'll take me up on the offer to come back and talk more on the topic. That's it for this week. Uh, Coming up next, I actually have a great conversation with Tracy Gillette of Raise Good, where we are going to talk about education, or rather, what are some of the flaws in our current education system and how we have ourselves kind of gotten around them a bit. So hopefully you'll join me for that. And in the meantime, if you would like to, please feel free to go and leave a review on, I think it's Apple. Again, I'm not up to date on all this stuff, but uh, it would be great for getting the word out for people to hear the podcast who might be interested in this. So thank you very much for joining me. I'm Tracy. I'll see you next time.